0: Biz
1: News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour this Wednesday, the 3rd of November. I'm Alec Hogg and in our virtual studio, Nadia Swart and Justin Roe Roberts. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to kick off with the election. I pulled the numbers out from the IEC on the voter turnout. Now, listen to these numbers. There were
2: 18.5
1: million people who registered to vote in this election. Already, that's telling us that there's almost as many people who didn't register to vote as those who did register. Then the numbers who voted in this election, according to the IEC, was 8.2 million people. That's 44% of those who registered. But there were a couple of other issues. In the 2016 local elections, there were 26 million people registered. So it's gone from 26 million people who had registered for that election, the highest ever, down to 18 and a half million. It's a significant decline. And the voter turnout five years ago was 58 percent. So the result of all of this is that the number of people who are going to vote in our governors at a local level in this election is almost half of what it was in 2016. It's gone down from 15.3 million voters to 8.2 million, as you said earlier, because the the less registered and the turnout has dropped. That's one of the reasons the ANC is doing so badly in this election because many ANC voters are, well, like Kaiser Chiefs uh, football supporters. If the team isn't playing that well, you don't switch across to pirates. You actually just stop going to the games. And as a consequence of this, uh, many of the ANC voters seem to have stopped going to the games. The best of the of the provinces for the turnout was the Northern Cape, which is usually one of the highest. Second best was the Western Cape, where 50% of the voters turned out. None of the others were over 50%. And the lowest was the Northwest, where only a third of the people, well, 36%, of the registered voters actually bothered to go to the polls. Justin, you haven't voted in as many elections as I have. Obviously, there's a somewhat of a difference in our ages. But it, it does tell you that you only have this option once every five years locally and once every five years for the parliament. And not taking advantage of it is, is really irresponsible.
2: Exactly, Alec. And I find it quite counterintuitive when the parties aren't doing what the people want. There's, there's cries for change. However, the people, as you said, they just simply lose interest and would rather not go to the polls than cast their vote for change, which is what these all elections are all about.
1: It is indeed. But perhaps on the other hand, there are other reasons. I'm sure we will uncover that as we talk to the experts in the time ahead. Nadia, you've got, uh, with Jared having construction at his home, so he's not going to Bother us with bangs and smashes. Uh, you've got the insights on uh, what the business community are consuming.
3: Yes, I do. So, uh, here are the most access stories on the business platforms. On business.com, elections 2021, opposition off to a flying start, the 500,000 Rand investment challenge, Pitfall Universe's Magnus Haysack, and how to avoid risking your retirement savings are among the best read pieces and on business tv which you can find on youtube yesterday's flash briefing the 500,000 rand investment challenge between foryun and haystack and the business share portfolio are the most popular videos with our community and lastly on business radio on spotify yesterday's flash briefing last night's business power hour and sifting out the flyby nights in solar solutions for homes with the best listened to podcasts.
1: And we are going to hear more about solar solutions uh, in the program coming up. Uh, Bronwyn Nielsen spoke uh, to the principal behind Solar Saver, so interesting story there. We've got a rhino story for you tonight, uh, where the Australians are going to try and make sure that rhinos do not go extinct in South Africa. And how they're going to do that is by exporting some of our finest rhino stock uh, to down under uh, Justin, you've got a couple of uh, interesting interviews as well. The first of those that we're going to be playing tonight is with David Bacher.
2: yeah David and his team from uh, Korean Capital they produce uh, an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns. Uh, I highly recommend to any level of investor It just gives you that informative update for the month that was. David and I go through which was an incredible month for global equity markets. Of course, the business portfolio performed really well. Tailwinds from the big US tech names that dominate our portfolio, or your portfolio rather, Alec.
1: Our portfolio, uh, Justin, you can take (laughs) responsibility too.
2: (laughs) And the JSC in constant currency terms also went up by 5%. So there's a lot to catch up with David. And good to see the resource counters, the miners, um, coming back strongly after a tough few months for them.
1: And then you spoke with the chief executive of NetOne. You did mention that in your market report last night, that very sizable uh, transaction. Uh, he is a new CEO. Uh, that's a company that's got a long history that many people will recall because of the SASA scandals, etc. Uh, was it, well, looking at it, I suppose the big question is, would you be buying the shares?
2: Very interesting. And the answer is yes. So Chris has recently come in, Chris Mayer. They've rebranded their management team. There's a whole new focus in there. This acquisition is huge. I like this. uh, NetOne has a market cap of 6 billion rand as it stands, which has gone up significantly the last few days. The Connect Group, which services the informal sector with regards to payment solutions, this acquisition was 3.7 billion rand. They they seem very confident on it. And they're going to get large broad exposure into the informal market, which is growing.
1: Wow. So it's like a 50% plus increase in the, in the value of the business. Well, it would be interesting to follow that as we go ahead. And, of course, we've got that interview that Justin did coming up. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that's your cue, Nadia. What's in the headlines today? That's your cue, Nadia. What's in the headlines today?
3: Economist Mike Schissler says that South Africa's load shedding problems have cost the country well over a million jobs. A report by PwC recently posited that load shedding in 2021 will cost the country 350,000 jobs. However, Schistler said that aside from large industries like the service industry and the telecom sector, thousands of smaller businesses and jobs were lost due to the failing grid. Along with the direct impact of power restrictions, the widely known electricity problems also deter foreign investment, the economist said, which further stifles growth. ESCOM says that it will need between 460 billion and 537 billion Rand over the next 15 years to transition away from generating electricity from coal this is more than triple the amount escom previously said it would need to shut down most of its coal-fired power stations by 2050 as a major contributor to south africa's carbon footprint escom will pre- play a pivotal role in enabling a just energy transition from coal to low and no carbon sources of electricity generation said escom group ceo André regulator South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced yesterday that South Africa would receive 130 billion rand in funding over the next three to five years from several rich nations to support the country's move from coal to clean energy. And with over two thirds of the ballots counted, the ANC's share of the national vote in the 2021 local elections is still on track to fall by up to 10 percentage points from 56% in 2016 to 46% in 2021. Many of its traditional supporters appear to have elected not to vote, with the total votes cast down by as much as one-third on the elections five years ago. The trends suggest that this ANC no-show is costing the party dearly and that it will need to strike coalitions to retain control of any of SA's major metros, including the previous Fortress of Etiquini, where its share is currently a massive 16 percentage points down on 2016 at slightly over 40%. For regular updates on the local election results, visit biznews.com. Justin, over to you for the market report.
2: Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index was up at 68,300. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 42 cents to the dollar, 21 rand, 5 cents to the pound, and 17 rand, 86 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,773 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 29,000 rand. Brent crude is lower, trading at $83, 30 cents a barrel. And Bitcoin is hovering around the million rand a coin mark. In the financial news, Anglo-American has appointed Duncan OneBlood as its new CEO, replacing Mark catafani who is retiring next year after nine years in the role, the mining conglomerate announced on Wednesday. OneBlood, 54, who is in the firm's director for strategy and business development, will take up the position in April 2022. The executive started his career at the Johannesburg Consolidated Investment Company in 1990 and has held various positions at Anglo-American. Kadafani will retire as CEO and step down from the board on the 19th of April, 2022. He'll remain employed by Anglo-American until the end of June 2022 to continue to support the transition, according to the company. Retailer Mr. Price says profits have rebounded from South Africa's hard lockdown in 2020, but civil unrest has shaved off almost $100 million in earnings. Headline earnings per share are expected to rise by between 30% and 40% in the six months to October The group said in an update, a profit rise of around 350 million rand. Civil unrest throughout KwaZulu natal and parts of Gauteng in July, resulting in the looting of 111 of the group's 1,600 stores, or around 7% of its footprint.
1: This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Glasgow Climate Conference today is all about financing the transition to a net zero carbon emissions world. Meanwhile, an FT investigation finds that some banks have backtracked on their climate pledges. Plus, we'll hear from our Gulf correspondent on how the UAE and Saudi Arabia plan to transition away from oil. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. An FT investigation has found that banks, including BNY Mellon, Barclays and Deutsche Bank, have all watered down their pledges to combat climate change. And they're continuing to finance the fossil fuel industry. The FT's Camilla Hodgson was on the
4: investigation. So what we did was we looked across several different policies from different banks which talk about what they're prepared to do in relation to financing the fossil fuel industry or carbon intensive industries in general. And we were interested in looking at whether wording of pledges had changed over time. And we found that it had. This really came from one initial example, which was about Deutsche Bank. And we thought if one bank has done something like this, it's likely that there are others. And it's a combination of things. Some banks have just changed the wording. Others have made commitments a couple of years ago to disclose things that are now not still fully disclosed. So it's a kind of shifting of the goalposts, or maybe a kind of reluctance to fully do what they said that they would do.
0: So does this come up in Glasgow, criticism that banks aren't fulfilling their pledges?
4: It's a good question. There is a lot of talk today, in particular because it's Finance Day. There has been quite a lot of criticism recently from campaigners who say banks have committed left, right and centre to net zero, but they still continue to fund fossil fuel companies, and in particular that they continue to fund the expansion of fossil fuel plants And that's important because earlier this year, the International Energy Agency said that in order to be in line with reaching net zero and limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, we really need to make sure there is no new fossil fuel capacity added to the system. Like we can't be funding new coal mines, new gas pipelines, that kind of thing.
0: Camilla Hodson is the FT's climate reporter. She spoke to us from the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. IFT's Gillian Tet is also in Glasgow. She's watching today's discussions about financing the fight against climate change. Gillian's also the co-founder of our Moral Money newsletter. She joins me now. Hey, Gillian.
5: Hey, good to talk to you.
0: So, Gillian, I want to ask a question that might seem ridiculously obvious to a lot of people, but I, you know, I still want to ask it. How important is finance in the effort to tackle climate change?
5: Well, it's important both in a practical sense, because unless you can get money to fund the transition, then you're not going to actually have a transition. And the big question right now is, is that money going to come from government sources or from the private sector sources? But I should say it's also pretty important in a political sense, because the reality is, that although the COP26 talks are supposed to be about intergovernmental discussions, um, the government piece of the equation has been pretty disappointing so far. So a lot of people are looking to the private sector to come up with better news. And what Rishi Sunak and Alex Sharma are going to be doing is really trumpeting any good news they can find from the private sector. And Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, has managed to deliver some pretty impressive news.
0: Yeah. Would you mind talking a little bit about that, Julian?
5: Well, the big news of the day on Wednesday is that a group called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero has come out under Mark Carney's leadership and decided that it's got 130 trillion of private capital, which it says is committed to transforming the economy towards net zero. There's two really important points to notice about that number. One is that it's bigger than 100 trillion that the GFAN's estimates will be needed to finance the transition to net zero in coming years. The second thing to stress is that if this money is deployed, what they're also saying is they reckon that about 70% of the cost of moving to net zero globally will end up being funded by the private sector, not the public sector. And the reason that's important to stress is because until now, the discussion has been totally dominated by this $100 billion goal that was set for the rich countries to provide financing to the poor countries to help them with their transition but what Mark Carney is stressing is that actually it's 130 trillion that really matters some people say well you know what that just sounds like greenwashing people like Mark will say actually no this is real money that could be unlocked if and only if we get the right regulatory audit and financial structuring platforms in place in the next year or so
0: yeah, so it's it's actually interesting you bring that up because earlier in the show, the FT's Camilla Hodson told us about banks who've gone back on their climate promises and are still funding fossil fuel projects. You know, what does that say about the challenges of getting private financial institutions on board?
5: What's clear is that all of the private sector financial institutions want to be seen to be doing something right now. And the fact that reports are coming out claiming that banks have gone backwards is actually a very good thing because it shows that scrutiny and transparency is rising. But the other thing that's also very clear is that governments are stepping up to make more of this mandatory. And the other thing that's very, very striking is that auditors are now under pressure to be much more aggressive in how they audit companies and their pledges on the climate side. And that's very important because if the auditors really start clamping down on companies with government um, pressure as well, you could actually start to see a lot more teeth in these new pledges and these new green accounting standards.
0: That's the FT's Jillian Tet. She's our U.S. editor at large and also a co-founder of the FT's Moral Money newsletter. And you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Moral Money. All you have to do is go to ft.com slash cop26podcast and click on Get the Newsletter. We'll also have a link in the show notes. And finally, let's go to the heart of the fossil fuel industry. Saudi Arabia and also the United Arab Emirates both have pledged to get their carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2060 and 2050, respectively. To talk about how realistic this is, I'm joined by our Gulf correspondent, Simeon Kerr. Thanks for joining me, Simeon. Hi there. So, Simeon, how motivated are Gulf countries to move away from fossil fuels? Are there pledges just, you know, greenwashing?
6: You know, I think in the past, there would have been that that accusation would have been leveled at them quite a lot. But I think there seems to have been some kind of tipping point globally. And that has huge implications for the region, given its dependence on fossil fuels. And, and around the Gulf governments, there really is an acknowledgement that we're heading towards a post-oil future. And therefore, there's a limited time frame a few decades, in order to completely transform economies. And so I think the genie's out the bottle now, and it is hard to see how they can go back. Yeah, let's talk specific, Simeon. What have
0: they done so far to make progress towards net zero?
6: Basically, they're shifting away from using oil and gas to power their electricity grids. And there's a lot of power that needs to be used in this region. Air conditioning is a huge factor, obviously, given the heat and so they're definitely focusing on renewables as boosting that within the mix. UAE started 15 years ago on this and has made very good progress. Saudi Arabia's started later, but when you look at the geography of the Arabian Peninsula, a lot of land and obviously a lot of sun, it's very advantageous for solar energy. So they're really pushing on that. At the same time, they'll be looking at carbon capture, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has talked about planting millions of trees. And then also, when you think about all these oil fields, as they're depleted, they're the ideal storage solutions for the excess carbon, which is going to be, need to be sequestered, while at the same time emissions are reduced.
0: That's the FT's Gulf correspondent, Simeon Kerr. This has been your daily FT News briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
2: I'm Justin Roberts of Business, News and with me today is David Bacher, Chief Investment Officer of Corian Capital. Corian publishes a monthly report which is an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns which is a must-read for any level of investor. The report can be accessed on business.com or the Korean Capital website. David, October was an unbelievable month for global equity markets. Despite inflation and supply chain fears, the market marched higher, with the JSC and all major U.S. indices climbing more than 5% for the month in constant currency terms. What caught your eye on October?
7: Well, I think what is quite interesting, it seemed to be almost a reversal from the month before. I mean, the month before we had resources under pressure, financials doing stronger, stronger RAND. Um, well, this year, um, I'll say this month, it was a complete reversal. You had uh, resource stocks, uh, you know, being up 20%, 25%. Um, so if you, you know, went against the grain uh middle of this month, you you could have actually made a, a very, very decent return, specifically on stock selection calls, as opposed to just equity returns. So equities uh, were, were definitely up, but uh, resources completely outperformed financials. So if you got that sector rotation right, uh, you would have done really, really well this month.
2: The JS share Index is up 36% on a rolling 12-month basis. Yet some managers, such as Pitfall Yun's Counterpoint Value Fund, have beaten the benchmark comprehensively, generating returns of up to 60% in the same comparative period. What is this outperformance a result of?
7: I think it was um, Mark Twain who said, uh, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Um, And I think if you go back a year and you look at all the the naysayers and the people who said, it was finished, uninvestable, et cetera. Um, you know, you would find yourself on the side of the majority. And people like Pitt and other value managers, um, really, who actually stuck to their principles and saw value in shares and at some point, no matter how difficult the environment is, um, if you've got a business that is sustainable and can see it to the other side, um, valuations do count. And those managers, uh, really reap the benefits. And if you look at uh, the returns over the last year, you had, uh, although, you, as you said, the All Share Index was up about 36%, you had small caps up over 60%. The Fledging Index, which is even smaller than the small cap, obviously, was up almost 100%, 96%. So uh, people who thought, you know, who had given up on South Africa and given up on South African shares and small caps, et cetera, um, lost out. And those people who stayed the course and those people who went against the grain uh benefit of all what, what we've seen, significant corporate activity in the sector. Uh owners, private equity uh stepping in and saying, look at these valuations, enough's enough. We're gonna buy these shares. Um and that's why you've seen such discrepancies. Uh and it's you know, if you look at the asset management industry, you see the names of the houses that are on the top of the rankings. It's those houses who A, had the patience to be there and B, who could actually have the patience and implement it. The bigger houses, um, although they have benefits, really struggle to invest in the mid, small, uh, and certainly the fledging industry. And that's why you've seen such massive divergence of, of returns over the last year.
2: I agree completely, David. And all this corporate action is indicative of how cheap the JSC and our market actually is. But on asset classes, equities and bonds are probably the two most well-known asset classes. Preference shares have characteristics of both equities and bonds and have performed really well in recent times. What is the reason for this outperformance? And can you just explain what preference shares are?
7: Uh, great question. Um, yeah, so preference shares was up over 62%. So preference shares is, is a bit of a hybrid instrument between equities and bonds. So you get an income payment in the form of a, of a dividend, uh, but that dividend is linked to, in South Africa to the prime rate. Um, so as obviously interest rates go lower, your, your dividend income would be less. Um, so a lot of these dividends or preferences were issued by the South African banks. Um, and the reason why the South African banks issued them is it was a a, a cheapish way for them to raise regulatory capital. And what that means is, in terms of you know banking regulations, uh, you're going to have a minimum amount of equity um, and regulatory capital to meet solvency requirements. Um, but following uh, you know the financial crisis and, and new banking regulations globally, it was deemed that preference shares would no longer contribute to your regulatory capital. So what banks have effectively done now is say, well, if that's not going to contribute to your regulatory capital, uh, the benefits of holding preference shares has become a lot less in their hands. And what happened last month uh, led by Nedbank and, and recently uh, um, Nedbank is they announced that they are going to buy back their shares because it was not worth holding those shares in their house because they weren't getting the benefits of the cheap regulatory capital. But in the interim, these shares, the preference shares, um, have uh, really been, um, it's quite an a, a illiquid market. Uh, investors, because of the low dividends, weren't really um, buying these shares, and they started to trade at a significant discount. So in the instance of, of Nedbank, uh, you know, these shares were trading at about 7, around 10, Um Where when Investec, when Nedbank announced that they were going to buy out, make offer to buy all the preference shares, so on the back of Nedbank buying out all the preference shares at 10 rand, it's almost 30% increase. All the other investors started to realise that there's a great chance that these other banks are going to buy back their preference shares. So although it's been a great asset for for investors in that it gives you a great income, we suspect that there'll be less and less preference shares around in the years to come as companies buy back their preference shares so um, that's been the main reason why preference shares has rallied so strongly uh, due to corporate activity and also due to them sh- um, trading at such a discount to 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 their power value what are the other big
2: developments that have taken place within the asset management industry over the month of october
7: it's been a quite an interesting period i um, I think uh, the big houses, there's been two big announcements that really caught my eye. Uh, the one was Sunlum announcing um, that it's going to uh, buy up uh, Absa Investment Management, and collectively they're going to uh, manage, be an asset manager of over a trillion rands worth of, of assets. That's a significant move in the industry. Um, the other one was Stanlub announcing that they're partnering with J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan, uh, you know, one of the household names and a global lead in the asset management industry are going to help them uh, with the strategic rollout of their international uh, funds. And I think why those two uh, developments are, are are very interesting is, you know, South Africa is getting smaller and smaller in terms of number of shares. A lot of people are looking to external lives. Competition in the active management has become really, really high with the advent of passive shares and passive uh, unit trusts, passive managers, smart beat, et cetera. So you have a lot of houses uh, really fighting over a, a smaller part. So we expected consolidation in industry. We're starting to see it. We're starting to see the houses also look to how better to externalize some of the offering because of high demand for offshore assets. So I think those two Um, developments really were were quite striking.
2: On that, David, which side of the fence are you on? Passive or active management? Or do you think there's a happy medium an optimal mix of including both in one's portfolio?
7: Definitely the latter. I think they're both great tools. I think if you follow either one blindly it's to your disadvantage, Uh, there are times when you want to be more active and there are times when you want to be more passive. But uh, I think what it has done, the the whole activist-passive debate it is really open up portfolio construction. So ourselves at, at Corian, you know, we know um, that uh, if we want to invest in our underlying manager, we try and say, okay, well, this manager is really good, but is he taking significant risk to, against the benchmark? And if he is doing, uh, if he is taking on that significant risk, then we'll be very, very happy because we can complement that exposure with a passive instrument. So that allows us to produce a cheaper product for our clients, control the risk better, and make sure we're getting value for active management and we're getting value for passive management. Um, And there's a lot more accountability and less blurring of the lines. What are the most attractive local asset
2: classes in the eyes of the team at Corian at the moment?
7: We're very bullish on South African bonds. Um, If you look at the 10-year South African bond, it's trading at about 10%. Now, we know that there's South African problems and fiscal issues, et cetera, uh, but a, a real return of, of you know more than 5% right now, we think you're more than being compensated for that risk. If you if you look at what the market is actually pricing in over the next five years for inflation, implied inflation is at about 8%. So we're taking the view that, uh, yes, there is inflationary uh, pressures building up here is inflationary concerns, but over the next five years, would inflation be as high as eight percent over that period? We over well, the years won't be. So we think at these uh, returns, as a, a real return of five percent, you more than getting compensated for, for for that risk.
8: How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables? giving us technology that connects us hospitals that care for us and the tools that shape our cities and by backing the next generation of business owners that's why south africa banks on business business banks on us standard bank
0: it can be standard bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider t's and c's apply I'm
2: Justin Roberts of Business and with me today is NetOne Technology CEO, Chris Mayer. The main topic of conversation today will be centred around NetOne's acquisition of fintech company The Connect Group for 3.7 billion rand. But before we delve into that, Chris, by way of background, what service or product does NetOne offer to the market?
9: Hi Justin, and firstly thanks very much for, for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so we at NetOne, we're a financial technology business, um, and our, our core sort of purpose, I suppose, is um, about bringing financial inclusion to, um, to South Africa's underserved customers, um, and that's uh, both consumers and small and, and micro merchants. So we're a technology-based business, and we bring a range of financial uh, products and services to those, to those consumers.
2: What was the rationale for the acquisition of the Connect Group?
9: so w- w- our vision for our business is to, to is to grow it into south africa's leading fintech platform offering the payment processing and financial uh, services to underserved merchants and consumers um, and if you look at our business today we've got a a, a, a very well established presence in the uh, consumer space um, you know we've got over a million customers already we've got fantastic products uh, great reach great distribution uh, and are we well positioned? But when you when you think about uh, the model of being that leading financial uh, technology player across merchant and consumer, what's critical for us to build out within that is a presence in the MSME space, the micro uh, and small merchant space. So you look at the Connect Group, and in one move, it really helps us fill that gap. The Connect Group is a leading player in terms of providing financial services to micro and 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 small merchants in South Africa, they have a reach of over forty four thousand uh, merchant customers already uh, in that space. Um, so that's really it. It's, you know if you look at if you look at net one in the merchant space today, you probably know us for easy pay. We have a um, the easy pay payments uh, infrastructure, but you know that's really focused in the formal sector and probably in the large corporate space in particular. And what we really want to do is build a presence uh, in that micro and medium um, merchant space. And the Connect Group opens that up for us um, in, you know, in a transformative way, really.
2: A 3.7 billion rand acquisition on a market cap of around 6 billion rand. This is a huge acquisition relative to the size of your current business. Tell us about how the deal was structured from a debt and equity perspective and the reasoning behind that.
9: Yes, yeah, and as I say, it's transformational. Uh, you know, the the size of the the Connect Group coming in is you know roughly the same size as our existing business. So you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, so three point seven billion. The overall enterprise value is actually uh, four point eight billion. Um, and uh, so how that's structured, um, just on 2.3 billion, two point three billion, two point three five billion of that is is debt. Um, and that breaks out about 1.1 billion of that will replace existing debt within the Connect Group. And the rest is debt, new debt that we will take on at the net one Hold Co. Um, and then there is uh, just on 480 million rand of uh, deferred shares that we're issuing. Um, and of that, about 138 is actually going to staff as part of an incentive structure. Um, and then the rest, which is around 2 billion rand, we're going to fund uh, through cash resources, which we have on balance sheet already. Given the increased use of leverage within the broader
2: NetOne Group, how important is it that Connects acquisition or inclusion into the stable hits the ground running?
9: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is the Connect Group is a is a highly profitable business. Um, it, we've seen you know year on year around thirty percent growth in, in EBITDA uh, over the last three years. That the compound growth in EBITDA is over forty percent, um, and it is a very profitable business in its own right. So. You know, one of the big attractions for us when we looked at this acquisition, other than filling the space, you know, that I talked about in the merchant, uh, in, in the merchant market, is that this is a profitable business already on day one. It's a high growth, profitable fintech business, which really is additive to the overall uh, net one proposition.
2: Net one is a relatively liquid counter on the JSE. Do you think corporate action of this scale will generate some interest and liquidity in the company?
9: Yes, I, I I would hope so. You know, there's a few things here. Net One, obviously, we've had a a, a, a difficult past. We've we've got a lot. We've had a lot of work to do to refresh and reset and renew Net One. Uh, we've replaced the entire board. the a brand new board uh, with some remarkable people, some leading people from across the South African business community and and beyond. We've completely replaced our um, executive leadership group as well. I, you know, I've joined three months ago, Lincoln Marley, uh, a fantastic person who's joined us from Standard Bank, and a number of other top executives have come in. So we've completely reset the board, re- reset the executive team, and we're on a, you know, a renewed purpose around building financial inclusion for the underserved commu- you know, communities in South Africa, merchant and consumer. And we feel you know, we need to prove uh, who we are and show our place here in society. Um, that's the first step. And, and from there, yes, you know, bringing in businesses like the Connect Group really broadens um, the proposition. I think it, it propels us to the leading fintech platform in our country, which is tremendously exciting. And I think, you know, it creates a proposition, a, a listed proposition that is quite a rare thing, not only in South Africa, but on the NASDAQ, where we have our primary listing, uh, you know, access to fintech stories such as our own. Um, you know, focus on financial inclusion are, are, are actually that are, are quite difficult to 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 get to. Um, you know, so yes, we, you know, we we optimistic. Uh, we believe we've got a business that's got real growth potential, and uh, we're on a path of renewal. As you said, the Connect Group targets the informal economy. In
2: my eyes, at least, the informal economy, especially in South Africa, can almost be seen to be defensive in nature. Given South Africa's economic challenges, that specific demographic is arguably getting larger in size. Would you agree, and was this part of the rationale?
9: Yes, I mean, it's spot on. That's exactly how we see it. You know, um, if, you, if firstly, South Africa, is, as we know, um, is primarily a cash-based economy. Um, 60% of transactions are conducted in cash in, in South Africa, which is... Is you know f- common f- across some other middle-income middle countries, and the second, you know, f- I suppose, trend is this uh, secular shift that we see from cash to digital. Cash remains important; it's the entry point into that digital journey. And then the, 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 the additional factor in, in, in the South African context, which you're referring to, is the size of the informal sector. Now, we we think in the in the in the MSME space, in the formal sector, there are about seven hundred thousand small and micro. Uh, merchants, but when you look into the informal sector it 's double that there, you know there 's one point four million, and we feel that that is a sector that is overlooked underserved um, and you know is really uh, the, the market that we see the growth in and and that is you know, you know when you look at the connect group um, as i said forty you know over forty four thousand um, merchants already served of that thirty five thousand or thereabouts are in the informal sector, so it really puts us you know, at the the leading edge in terms of moving into supporting and serving uh, the informal merchants uh, in in South Africa.
2: July riots
9: which saw a number of businesses, big
2: and small, destroyed in a matter of days. Are events like this, does this make you sheepish or concerned about the Connect Group exposure to these types of businesses?
9: Look, I mean the July riots were unfortunate for for our country um, in a very sad time. You know, and you you would hope that these are are issues that we can address as a country and resolve and and, and not have to see again. Um, From a Connect Group perspective, you know, the group emerged really, really well through that. You know, if you look at the the, the Cash Connect business, um, which is the smart digital safe business, it's known for quality, uh, really high quality uh, devices, which withstood, um, you know, a large part of what happened in the riots.
10: With me now is Stuart Bachelor, director of Solar Saver. Stuart, thank you very much for joining us here on Biz News. You started in 2016 and offering unique, cost-effective solar solutions to the retail player as well as businesses. I'm assuming. Perhaps just give us a little, a little bit of depth around the business itself.
11: Oh, great! Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we started in 2016 as a solar engineering company. We were doing EPCs and selling solar assets. Um, and we, we noticed, what well, we found in the market, that a lot of people were a little bit skeptical or um, cautious to, to invest in the, in the solar field specifically because it was, it was very expensive and they weren't too sure how, how long we'd be around or various parties would be around. So, so there was a bit of concern on like longevity of businesses. Um, so we, we pivoted and re- actually raised ourselves a solar fund at the time, so that we could offer solar as a rent-to-own or under um, a PPA contract, so that businesses would have a bit of a um, bit of comfort in in the fact that you know we would sell power and we'd take all the responsibility and we'd do the cleaning, the maintenance, the, the operation of the asset, and they can get on with their own business. So. That was the, the original approach was to, to move into a PPA model. And, and when, we, we, when that, we talk
10: about like, PPA, obviously a power purchase agreement.
11: Yes, yes, correct. Uh, so so we, we raised a fund and we started um, offering solar under the power purchase agreements and, and kind of have grown ever since. So we, we still do sell solar and you know, we do get the odd client that, that wants that, but the predominantly our business is um, putting up solar but under PPA models.
10: Talk to me about the growth from from 2016. Obviously, renewable energy in high demand. You must have seen exponential results, especially over the last couple of years.
11: Yeah, it's it's been it's been a quite a wild ride. And um, we first started, and we were you know kind of going along, doing, referring odd people, trying to get business going, and it just ramped up massively. And we we are we were swamped. We had. We've grown, we've got offices all across South Africa, Botswana, Namibia. We've got 370 odd sites. It's just been massive, massive growth. And especially with all the load shedding recently, every time there's been load shedding, our phones just ring off the hook. And when there's price increases coming in April or July, depending on the municipality, same thing we the phones just ring, and we 've got massive demand, so it 's it's, it's a good business to be You
10: mention many sites across Africa, and you also name Botswana and Namibia. Are you far yes. into the north of Africa, East and West Africa
11: no, so we our main focus has has been Namibia was where we started and got got going predominantly, and then we back in South Africa obviously. Um, so those are the two countries that we've been focused on. We've recently, as over the last couple of months, opened up in Botswana. So those are the only countries that we're focusing on at the moment.
10: And what are the aspirations for your geographic growth?
11: Um, well, we, we get approached from, you know, all over Africa. We've had people in Ghana, Nigeria, Zanzibar. Like we, We're getting approached, but we're wanting to grow sustainably and still offer the, the service that we, we can. So... We are actually just staying focused in Southern Africa at the moment and make sure that we we deliver on our promises.
10: And, and just talk to me about the actual business model. I mean, I know you reference the power purchase agreement, but if if I was to come and buy a, a solar cell, if a product from you, what is the process that I would go through?
11: So it's it's a pretty straightforward process, and we want to make it as easy or hassle free for the client as possible. So when we get approached, we'll, we'll get electricity bill from you and we'll look at your, your location. We'll do a model of the whole site and see, based on your bills, how much solar you would need or what we would recommend. Then we'll do a design based on your location and your building. And then we'll present you with uh, a proposal on, on how much solar we'll put and the, the tariff that we'll charge you for. And then if you go ahead we, we'll put it up we'll do all the council applications the structural and assessments make sure it can all go and then we'll install the asset so then we just start there's there's no cost to you at all during this whole process then you just start purchasing the electricity on a monthly basis however much the solar produces that's what you pay and if it breaks or goes down or if it's a rainy month there's no cost to you obviously um and then if at any stage you want to buy it out it's we Tell you the original purchase price at the start of the contract and at, at any point, any day down the line along the contract, if you want to buy it out, you can just buy it out at the original price, less depreciation.
10: Now, you mentioned engaging with ICASA. Talk to me about the regulatory environment and whether that has been enabling from your perspective.
11: It's, that's actually one of our biggest challenges um, to date. Uh, we find that municipal applications are very time-consuming and delay a lot of projects. I mean, we've got a, a huge pipeline of signed contracts that are, are just sitting waiting on, on council approval. It's That's, that's the biggest um, challenge to our business at the moment. Um, it does d- depend on municipalities or if you've got a direct ESCOM feed, how difficult the process is. But... Um, some municipalities have got no process at all, and then we have to kind of guard them on what other municipalities are doing. Some just seem a bit reluctant to have any solar at all and just delay the process as much as they can. On on ESCOM feeds, it, it's not even consistent across the country. Some ESCOM branches are more difficult than others, but that is the biggest challenge we've got at the moment. Yeah.
10: Stuart, you, you mentioned um, the load shedding, obviously, that we have become well accustomed to here in South Africa. And you mentioned the accelerated demand for your product. But over and above that, there must be extensive cost savings given the very, very high electricity charges that are coming through into urban areas. Can you give me a sense of of the cost saving that the average consumer can experience using SolarSaver?
11: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we... On the solar tariff, it depends on your on the solar yield that that you got at your building and how big the system is the, the so the solar tariff that we can offer is dependent on that but typically it'll be under under rand for um per kilowatt hour of solar power and if you're comparing that to the municipalities um you know city power sitting at one around some places at Kurileni on, in peak times, you know, sitting at 6, 7 rand a kilowatt up. So there, there's massive savings to be made without any capex to be spent. So it, there is huge
6: opportunities to, to save there. And what
10: about capacity? So do you have capacity? I mean, there are many people watching this interview right now thinking, let me find the, the number, the details for Solar Saver. Yeah. Do you have capacity for a, a flurry of activity onto your platforms?
11: Yes, absolutely. We we've got in-house teams, and we've got um, a number of teams that we've trained that do our installs. Um, so we we've got a, a lot of capacity at the moment. Well, we we're busy rolling out across the engine group. We've got 40 sites we're doing before the end of the year. We yeah we we we've scaled up to to do numerous small sites simultaneously. That's that's been our focus rather than attacking the huge solar farms and doing megawatts at one specific site. So that, that's been our focus is distributed multiple sites. So, yeah, we do we do have quite a lot of capacity for that.
10: And COP26, I mean, this is in your sweet spot, a good month to be engaging yeah. with the media from a renewable energy perspective. Any thoughts on, on what's coming out of COP26 and whether this uh, can obviously give you a, a boost just in terms of visibility with your offering right now?
11: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's been an amazing amazing result. There, we we're very excited about it. and Just hope that it can be be managed effectively without any corruption or and delays unnecessarily along the way. But but I, I think it's going to drive a lot of growth in the sector. And it's just at at the moment, we just um, face it forward, trying to trying to do what we can with our solar. But it, it's definitely opening the market, and, and it's, it's, it's exciting times in the this, in this sector.
10: Exciting times indeed. And I, and I do need to ask you the proverbial, proverbial five-year horizon for Solar Saver and your aspirations, uh, given the fact that you started in 2016, as you say, have seen exponential growth. You're in a sweet spot not only on the continent but also globally.
11: Yeah, we every every year we kind of are doing our expectations, so it's, it's hard to, to give a five-year growth because in this market, everything's moving so fast, we, we're not really sure. But we do have a number of sites uh, with grid-tied systems, and we are looking to go back and help take a lot of our clients off-grid. So we, we're looking to become a, a power company rather than a, a solar company. So we, we're looking at going a lot of battery um, off-grid systems and kind of expanding up Starting to move north as as we can.
10: Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us here on Business News. Yeah. Stuart Batchelor yes, is right. a director at SolarSaver.
11: Thanks for having me.
5: This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I
12: nothing all for Business news. Well, despite millions being spent on rhino protection elsewhere in Africa and in South Africa, the number of rhinos in the Kruger National Park is reported to have dropped to no more than 3,000. That is the lowest number ever. That's a decline by nearly two-thirds over the past decade, according to the South African National Parks or Sandbox. South Africa holds the majority of the world's rhinos, and it is the country that is the hardest hit by poaching animals. And while there's demand in the East, the situation remains dire. Well, worried that white rhinos could become extinct in Africa, a South African that has made Australia his home decided to investigate the feasibility of taking rhinos to Australia to act as an insurance policy in the event of the extinction of rhinos in the wild. Well, he's Ray Dealer, who started the Australian Rhino Project. And he has written a book about his journey titled The Crash of Rhinos. And joining me early in the morning from Sydney is Ray Dierloff.
8: How are you doing, Linda? Thank you for the opportunity. Just in terms of an introduction, a lot of people don't know that the collective noun for rhinos is a crash. So the the crash of rhinos is a kind of double entendre that says, you know, obviously it's a group of rhinos, but also the the havoc that's been played with them, as you said in your introduction. Did
12: you have resistance for your idea when you said, "Well, let's start with taking rhinos out to Australia"?
8: Then I had I had resistance pretty much from everywhere. I had resistance within South Africa. I had resistance in Australia. Um, Dealing with the first one first, uh, the South African authorities, I think they felt in some way that this was kind of a a criticism of what they were doing or what they had done. And so they were less than cooperative in the first instance in terms of, of bringing the rhinos out here. In Australia, much the same kind of thing. They had this, certain people had this belief that just as kind of cane toads and camels have overgrown Australia and um, are everywhere, um, that the same would happen with rhinos. As soon as I explained to them that the rhino has a gestation period of 16 months and drops one calf at a time, they realized that that wasn't actually an issue. So there was a lot of resistance on both sides.
12: In your book, you describe when you met officials from the Department of Environment, the South African officials, and the Minister for Environment at that stage, Edna Malewa tell us what she said
8: yes she was the minister of the environment at the time she's the late unfortunate she's passed away since then but she was at a conference here in, in sydney and i arranged to meet her and i met her in a conference room and then i felt really lonely because there was one of me and there was 11 of them and uh, she sat me down at the table and uh, and proceeded to basically give me a little bit of a lecture in terms of of uh, conservation and one thing, one thing, or another, which is fine. And, um, and then she said, uh, and anyway, why would you want to move rhinos out of South Africa? You see rhinos in the Kruger National Park around every corner. Oh. I, I kind of, I must have, I, I stopped in my tracks. So I thought, is she, is she having a guide me? Is she teasing me or whatever or trying to put me off? But I, and I, to this day, I don't know whether she was, uh, what the reason for making that, that, uh, that comment was. The truth was, it was not that at all. It is critically, Worse than that, with 3,000 left in the Kruger Park. That was the introduction when I first suggested this to a South African minister in the government.
12: And since then, have they cooperated?
8: There's some strange rulings, Linda, that, that, you know, I would have thought something like a rhino was a national asset. I mean, to me, it's a national asset. It's an icon and it's a national asset. But there are some rules and regulations that, that, that suggest that one can get approval to move animals out of the country going through the provincial system. So that is being pursued at the moment as an option. I know that many people in authority high up in in conservation and probably in government, although one doesn't get to hear that, are desperately concerned about the situation and are looking for all alternatives to save the rhino. Just as an example, if I may, is is Botswana, about 80 or 90 rhinos were moved to Botswana in the last couple of years from KZN. Which basically repopulated the Rhinos in, in Botswana. And uh, I hate to say that probably ninety percent of those have been poached in the past twelve to eighteen months. I think that there is a, a realization that finding something which is an a, a secure option is no bad thing. That's my sense. You don't always get the necessarily the you know, the the obvious or the right answer when you have these discussions. But, but plans are still afoot. You'll ask me this question, no doubt, later on. COVID has really put a massive stop on, on this whole program, but the plans are there, the rhinos are ready, and, and so on.
12: Well, take us on your journey. Have you transported any runners, or is that what you just said? You're just still waiting for the first ones?
8: No, we haven't transported any under this program. What people don't also, a lot of people don't know, is that there are probably 75 rhinos in Australia already scattered around. So when I had a discussion with a chap who was um, at that time the minister for the environment for Botswana, his name was Chikedi Karma, who was the brother of Ian Karma, who was the president at that time. And he asked me a similar question. I said, there's probably at that time there's 65 rhinos in in, in Australia. And he said, you've got more rhinos than we do, which was Crazy in many ways, but that's the truth. But they scattered all over different safari parks, Linda. So, no, there haven't been any moved on this program yet. And really, COVID has really put a stop to that. I'm hoping that in in 2022, when life will turn to some form of normality, that the runners will move out. You know, and I just quickly, people say, you know, this is wrong. Runners belong in Africa. Absolutely, they do. I mean, if there was no issue here, I would willingly just quit this program and raise a glass to celebrate.
12: Is Australia a safe place? I was just kind of thinking it's close to the market.
8: That's very true. And, yes, it is a safe place. I mean, it, no, no, no. I, I, again, I'm on record as saying there is no safe place in the world for rhinos. And 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 an example I use, in that is in, in Paris, is, is that some rhinos were poached at a zoo outside Paris. Now, you don't expect that at all to come about. Now, Australia is definitely safer than many other places in the world. One, it's an island. Secondly, the, the border protection in Australia is very, very strong and robust. It has been proven through COVID because they closed the country down, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, people can't get in this on. There's no poaching as such in the country, not to say that couldn't happen. Where the plan is to put the rhinos is pretty remote. So the question is, how would the poacher get in? But more importantly, how would the poacher get out? And that, that, that's, a, that's an issue. And the other thing, again, no criticism but true, is that the media in this country is fierce. It really is. And I think if just one rhino were poached, all hell would break loose and that would just be – deemed unacceptable now one gets to a situation in africa south africa and other countries in africa when one loses three a day it becomes the norm and i have difficulty with that as well so i think australia is safe there's no place that's safe
12: and how do they adapt do they have to be in safari parks do they have to be fat can they eat whatever is in australia
8: yes they, i should actually say that the the black rhino was was put out of bounds for us in terms of even thinking about that coming out of south africa and i i for that, they're severely endangered, as you would know yourself. Mm. And, um, and not just that, they're very different animals from the white rhino. And also they eat differently. The ones are browser, they're a browser. And the white rhino is a grazer. So, the And the, the black rhino has, eats a certain type of acacia, mm. which exists in Australia. So that's kind of off the, off the table. White rhinos adjust very easily, very easily indeed. And they are scattered around safari, safari parks in this country. And I, I don't see myself as an activist, but if I... I'm not a great fan of zoos on the record I'm known for that I'm very conscious about where these rhinos will land up and and, and make sure they're safe secure and happy so that they can breed I mean that's the that's the key
12: Tell me exactly what are your plans if COVID and the restrictions are over because one thing about Australia I mean Australia is really strict with COVID you barely out of lockdown so how is it going to happen if you get it going
6: The
8: plan goes like this the rhinos have been identified I know the fellow who's got them he 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 has a Conservancy in near Thomas and he looks after a lot of rhinos so that's where they'll be sourced they then have to go into quarantine from South Africa for a period of probably anything just three to six months so they can identify if there's any diseases in that. you have to select the rhinos very carefully to make sure that they're a breeding age because otherwise it's not doesn't make a lot of sense so there's, so they'll go into quarantine in South Africa then they'll be they'll be flown out to New Zealand I, I, this is just so complicated because they have a different quarantine arrangement with Australia. They'll spend a year in, in New Zealand in a safari park there, and then they'll be shipped here to Australia. That's that's the plan. So it's a long process, but it's been a long process, Linda. And I was warned at the time, this will take a long time, and I didn't believe them, but that's, I think, the South African way. If you can, you know, a good market plan.
5: This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com.
1: Thanks for being with us this third of November, and we wish uh, our partners at High FM a happy bar mitzvah tomorrow on the fourth. From the team here at Biz News, until the next time, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.